wonderful lesson in front of us. First lesson uh, through our study of this book, The Person of Christ, an introduction by Stephen Wellam. Um, there's books on, on the back table. They cost us $15, so if you could cover the cost of them, that would be great. If you're not able to, then don't worry about it. We can cover that. We'd be happy to. But um, yeah, $15 for these books. They're, uh, this is an outstanding book on uh, the doctrine of Christ. I, I'm just thoroughly impressed with it. Uh, this is in the same series of the one that we studied on the doctrine of the Trinity um, a couple of Emmaus Essentials ago. And I remember in that book, uh, the comment was made, it's probably in the uh, forward to this one or in the, the introduction to um, the idea that w- when you're dealing with an introductory, uh, an introductory study, the key is to not say things that need to be corrected later. You know, I mean, obviously you can't say everything that needs to be said about a particular doctrine in an introductory course or an introductory book. Um, but you know a book is good when uh, enough is said and it's said in such a way where corrections aren't going to be, need to be made down the road. You know, there, there's great precision in this book. I think we're going to benefit greatly from it. Um, people, I think there were about 15 people who spoke for them, so we should have about five extra. Yeah. I think we should. They should, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you could put them in the offering box um, in an envelope that says uh, books. And I think we have um, uh, Monique. Do we have more offering envelopes in the car? Jana was very concerned that we have the offering envelopes out of the car this morning. Um, Let's say a word of prayer for Jana. Uh, TZA kiddos are in Sunday school, yeah? Okay. Um, yes, she's in surgery as we speak uh, to have that, that tumor that they found removed. I posted things about that on the realm if you didn't see it, but uh, we need to keep her in prayer. And everybody was very optimistic and in good spirits this morning and, and at peace concerning this. And by everybody, I mean Jenna and, and Mike. Uh, my dad's there with Mike this morning to be with him during the surgery. And um, uh, the doctor was very positive too because this mass was on the outside of her brain, just inside the skull. They were confident that they'd be able to get it all. Um, So there's always reason for rejoicing and for hope in Christ, uh, but I think there's reason to be optimistic here, and uh, we will pray for her even now. Let's open in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for Christ who gives us the hope of life everlasting. I I pray that you would help us in this study to better understand Christ, to understand our Lord and Savior, who he is and why he needed to be who he is in order to redeem us deep in our understanding of these things. We thank you for the hope that is in him. We do pray for our, our sister in Christ, Jana, this morning, that you would bring healing to her, that you would sustain her through this surgery. Uh, We pray that she would be restored Uh, to wholeness in the days to come. Um, We pray that you'd be with Mike too, that you would give him peace during this time of difficulty. Uh, Go before us, O Lord. Help us to cling to you and to rejoice in you in all seasons, in times of plenty and in times of want. In the name of Christ, we say these things. Amen. Yes? Is Sunday school online? Sunday school is not online. Has it been online? Am I? No. 
Okay. The recording does go up. It, was John looking for it? Can we put it online real quick, Robin? Is he looking on sermon audio for it? Like on our website? I guess why not? Uh, sorry, I, I don't. Mike's gone. I, I don't ever deal with this stuff. I just. But I think you could just start that stream and. Um, all right, it should be there pretty soon, if not right now. Yes? Uh, maybe that's it. We did a video, video curriculum last time, so we didn't put that online. That's right. I do remember having that conversation with Mike. Forgive me. Okay, let's make our way through this outline. Early in uh, the introduction, Wellam quotes Mark 8.27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And you remember people had all sorts of different perspectives about Jesus. Um, most of them saw him to be a great prophet, a great teacher, perhaps, but only man. And, of course, what we will learn in this study is that Christ, though he is the great prophet from God, the great priest and king, he is more than just a mere man. He is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, uh, incarnate. So we're going to learn all about that. But who do people say that I am? Wellam says that's really what we're going to be all about in this book, answering the question, who is Jesus? And why did he need to be as he is in order to redeem us? It's going to be a fascinating study, brothers and sisters. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Who do people say that I am? And on my mind also, I, I, had, um, I wanted to say this. It's amazing how we speak about, having, about knowing God and about loving God. And in that study on the Trinity, I think a lot of us were, were thinking, I didn't know him as well as I thought that I did. I mean, that's not to deny a real relationship with God or... Um, you know, to, to, have, to enjoy sweet communion with God. We're, I'm not taking any of that away. It's possible to have a very sincere faith and a very close walk with the Lord and yet to be somewhat deficient in our understanding of who God is. Um, one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how those persons relate to one another through a generation, eternal generation. We learned all about that. So I, I hope our understanding of God was increased in the Trinity study. And I hope something similar happens as we study the doctrine of Christ. I, I do not deny that we, we know the Lord truly and sincerely and have salvation in Him, but to grow in our understanding of Christ is very important. I, I hope that the same thing happens in this study on the doctrine of Christ, that our, our knowledge of Christ is deepened, and therefore our love for Him and our nearness to Him is also deepened. Wellam says, Scripture, along with the creeds of the church, presents a consistent, clear answer to Jesus' question, Jesus is the divine Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, the Lord of glory, who in time assumed a human nature so that now and forevermore he is the eternal Word made flesh. A reference there to John 1, 1 and 14. And he did this because it's only one individual, God the Son incarnate, who could bring about God's eternal plan by securing our redemption, executing judgment on sin, and establishing a new creation by the ratification of a new covenant in his life, death, and resurrection. So we see these two statements 
first of all, a very good explanation of who Jesus is, who Christ is, and then secondly, a little bit of an explanation as to why he needed to be who he is in order to accomplish our redemption. Given the widespread confusion that exists in our day concerning the person of Christ, this study seeks to explain who Jesus is from Scripture and historical theology, why Jesus is unique, and how we are to think theologically about the Incarnation. This book is divided into three parts. Part one lays out the basic biblical data regarding Jesus' identity as presented across the Bible storyline. So, in, in the first part of this book, we're going to be dealing with lots of Scripture, first in the Old Testament and then the New, and that is our foundation. Part two turns to historical theology and thinks through how the church faithfully put together put together the biblical data and made theological judgments about Christ consistent with Scripture. I do like that little phrase, put together. That's what we do in systematic theology. That's what we do when we, when we do theology. We take the Holy Scriptures and we put together or bring together everything that is said in the Holy Scriptures about a particular topic. So if we're going to ask the question, who is Jesus? We need to answer that question from God's Word, but not from just a few verses here or there, from the totality of God's Word, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We need to bring it all together and put together our theology. And only will our theology on any given subject be biblical if we go about it in that way. Part 3 offers a systematic theological summary of who Jesus is as God the Son incarnate from Scripture and in light of the confessional orthodoxy of the church. So we'll begin with Scripture, then we will learn a lot about Christ with the help of those who have gone before us. We will do some historical theology, we'll look at the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon and and learn about the definitions that came from those councils, uh, very precise statements made concerning Christ that, that provide wonderful guardrails for us so that we don't go off track and, and, and drift into heresy or error. Uh, and then after that, there's a few statements made in a systematic way concerning God the Son incarnate from Scripture and in light of the confessional orthodoxy of the church. It's a wonderful book. I think you'll enjoy it very much. Chapter 1 is entitled, Approaching Scripture on Its Own Terms to Identify Christ. I will warn you ahead of time, you need to be kind of patient to let this book build and develop. We're not going to dive straight into systematic theology. We're going to start by laying firm foundations uh, having to do with Scripture as our authority for truth and even hermeneutical issues before looking at specific texts of Scripture and then developing these theological statements with the help of uh, the history of the church. So we must approach Scripture on its own terms to identify Christ. To know who Jesus is and to speak rightly of Him, the church, from its first days, has done theology from above, namely, from the vantage point of Scripture. The Bible, first the Old Testament and then the New, has provided not only the facts about Jesus, but also the interpretive framework for understanding Jesus' identity Any attempt to do Christology by some other means leads only to a Jesus of our own imagination. That statement right there and the conversation that flows from that statement in Wellam's book is so very important. You guys are in a Bible-believing church. This should seem obvious to you, this statement here, and it probably does seem obvious. But you should know that in very many seminaries and in some of these denominations, 
Um, theology is not done from above, but from below. Meaning, Scripture is not given its proper place. It is devalued. It is uh, even criticized. And instead, uh, things like human reason and historical inquiry are elevated as supreme over Scripture, though the people in these churches might not talk in this way. Uh, this approach is very common, um, and it has been common in this country uh, in, the, in the 20th century and even before, uh, so that you end up with this very strange approach to the Scriptures where theologians and where pastors are picking and choosing what we can and cannot believe about Jesus. Um, the scriptures are not viewed as being authoritative and inspired and inerrant and clear, but rather a critical approach is taken to the scriptures. We have to be aware of this. We must do theology from above. That's true of all doctrines. Here our focus is the doctrine of Christ. It's especially important when it comes to the doctrine of Christ. Christology from below versus theology from above from below, by from below, Wellam means the attempt to do Christology from the vantage point of historical critical research, independent from a commitment to the full authority of Scripture and a Christian theistic worldview. Such an approach is critical of Scripture and assumes that, Jesus, that the Jesus of history is not the Jesus of the Bible. I think in this chapter... Wellam does deal with the Enlightenment and the impact of the Enlightenment upon uh, the church. And he, he shows that really the Enlightenment has infected the church and infected institutions associated with the church seminaries so that um, we have this judgmental attitude sort towards the scriptures and we say, well, this is plausible given our worldview, but this is not, so we will reject this. And therefore, the scriptures are kind of whittled down to only what we believe is plausible. So who's a, who is the authority here? It is not God speaking to us through his word, but we ourselves are the authority in an in a approach like that. Uh, we ourselves, our own, our own reason, our own scientific inquiry, that becomes the authority for truth in, a, in an approach like that. Conversely, though, on the other hand, a Christology from above starts with the triune God of Scripture and His Word, and it seeks to identify Jesus' person and work from within the truth of Scripture. Letter A. Every interpretation and formulation of Christ's identity depends on and derives from a presuppositional nexus of philosophical and theological commitments. Any attempt to say who Jesus is and define His significance for the world assumes entire viewpoints regarding who and what God is, humanity is, and so on, and how we warrant these beliefs. From the beginning, the church has argued that to do Christology properly, we must do so under Scripture. To know Christ, we must do so from revelational epistemology and the truth of the biblical worldview. What is Wellam saying here? He's saying it's a complete waste of time. <laughs> I mean, this is a very terse way to say it. It's a complete waste of time to seek to know who Christ is if we are not going to do it from the vantage point of um, the triune God revealing himself to us in Scripture. There's no way we're going to get at who Jesus really is and why he is significant if we do not submit ourselves first to God's written word. We need to see him 
not in isolation, but in light of all of the other things that are said within the pages of Holy Scripture. We will not do Christology well if we do not first understand God and His creation and His covenant and the fall of man into sin and the promises made concerning redemption, etc. We are not going to come to a well-rounded and accurate understanding of who Jesus is apart from all of that. We, we must do theology proper first. We must establish a biblical worldview from the totality of what is said in Scripture if we are going to have any hope of coming to an accurate understanding of who this Jesus is and why He is to be Lord of our lives and why we are to trust in Him. We have to have the whole Word of God informing us. He says, letter B, it is not surprising that the Jesus from below is not the Jesus of the Bible, but often a reflection of the person doing the investigation. I thought that was a wonderful little statement there. What is he saying? Well, these people who are asking the question, who is Jesus, but they are elevating human reason above Scripture or seeking to know who he is from historical inquiry, what ends up happening is they don't end up with the Jesus of the Bible, they end up with the Jesus of their own imagination. And you know what? All of a sudden, it's a Jesus that they're pretty comfortable with. Surprise, surprise, right? It's a Jesus who doesn't demand much of them, who lives to serve them and their desires and their appetites, etc. A Jesus, oftentimes, who is not at all supernatural, not the divine Son, the second person of Trinity incarnate, not one who performed miracles, really, but all of those things are kind of stripped away. Not one who was virgin-born, you see. Um, those who do uh, Christology in this way, from below, not giving proper respect to Holy Scripture, are going to end up with a, a massively distorted Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to be a man. He might be a great man, but he will certainly not be the Son of God incarnate who is deserving of our worship, of our adoration. Why Christology must be from above is letter C. First, Christology must be from above because if Scripture is not the necessary and sufficient condition to warrant our Christological conclusions, then ultimately we will not be able to say anything objectively true and theological about Christ's identity. This is so true. If we're not willing to submit ourselves to the Word of God and to see the Word of God as God's revelation of Himself and of the Christ to us, really we're not going to be able to say anything that's solid about Jesus of Nazareth. It's all going to be speculative. It's going to be based upon our reason, our historical research, maybe even our feelings. You know, this is who I feel that Jesus is. You, you, you see that. And I've interacted with those who kind of have this view of Scripture and of Christ. I mean, I think we could use the term liberal to loosely describe them. They are liberal in, in their approach to the faith. Um, by the way, I do not think that liberal Christianity is Christianity at all, just to be clear. I think it's another religion altogether because they end up with a different God, a different uh, foundation for truth, a different Christ. Uh, liberal Christianity is not Christianity. It's another thing altogether. It's a different religion. I, I feel very strongly about that. I believe that truly. Um, but those who have this liberal approach to Scripture, who elevate reason and historical inquiry over uh, divine revelation, I've, I've, I've often wondered, why do you even bother with this? Why do you even bother with religion? Why do you even care to inquire as to who this Jesus is? He's just a man. 
Like, just get on with your lives. You, you don't have someone worthy of worship and obedience at the end of the day. You just have a religious guru like all the others, you know. Uh, you have someone who can teach you about morality, I guess, and maybe can help you along the way to have a decent life. Uh, but certainly there's no sense in coming to church to worship God in His name, you know. Uh, it seems like an utter waste of time. So Wellam notices this. He's saying, listen, if we're not going to start with Scripture and with the triune God who has given us Scripture, we're not going to be able to say anything objectively true and theological about Christ. Number two, under C. Second, a Christology from below fails to ground the uniqueness and universal significance of Jesus because it removes him from the Bible's storyline and interpretive framework. This is a wonderful observation, and it'll feel very uh, familiar to you because we're often talking about the, the story of redemption here at Emmaus and how all things find their fulfillment in Christ, how he is the central figure of uh, the, the history of redemption, the accomplishment of our redemption. So this will feel familiar to you. Wellam says, in truth, the only way we can warrant the theological claim that Jesus is the divine Son and that His incarnation and work have universal significance is by placing Christ's entire person and work within the plane, or excuse me, within the plan of the triune God as given in Scripture when it is viewed as authoritative. Only a Christology from above will result in the theological Jesus of the Bible. So you cannot just take uh, the, the question, who is Jesus, out of the storyline of Scripture. You, you have to ask the question, who is this Jesus, within the storyline of Scripture, and only then will we be able to see clearly who He is and why He came to do uh, what He did. Thirdly, a Christology from below cannot sustain Christian faith. As David Wells astutely observes, Christology constructed from below produces only a larger-than-life religious figure, the perfection of which many others already experience. So that goes along with what I was saying earlier. Why even bother with a Jesus like this, a Jesus who is the product of our intellect, our reason, and historical inquiry? A Jesus like that really cannot support the Christian faith. There's no reason to trust in a Jesus like that. But there is reason to trust in Jesus as he truly is, the second person of the Trinity who assumed a human nature in order to redeem us from sin and to bring us safely into his eternal reward. D, doing Christology from above and the use of Scripture. A few points about the use of Scripture. One, a biblical Christology must formulate Jesus' identity and the nature of the Incarnation by carefully attending to the Bible's canonical presentation of Him. So that's a very basic statement regarding how we need to approach the Scriptures and the question, who is Jesus? Two, this task requires an intertextual approach. Please correct my error. That's an intra-textual approach that we're to have, not intertextual intra-textual approach to Scripture, namely reading Scripture according to its own claims and presentation following the Bible's own categories and structure. So we need to ask who is Jesus 
from all, all of Scripture, from, from the whole of the Bible. We cannot just go to the Gospels. <laughs> I think this comes out in the sermon for today um, as well. Brothers and sisters, we cannot just go to the New Testament and treat it as a foundation for the Christian faith. The New Testament finishes the old. It brings the old to its conclusion. Um, And I think I say it in the sermon today, so you'll get it twice. To read the New Testament only would be like reading the very last chapter in a large and very complex, beautifully complex um, novel. You wouldn't enjoy that book very much if you just read the last chapter. But the last chapter is probably very important, but it's very important only in the context of the whole story that's been developed. So we cannot read the New Testament that way. We cannot ask who is Jesus and go to the Gospels only. The Gospels are written to show us that Jesus is the one who was promised from long ago. Uh, This is in the sermon as well, I think. The very first words of the New Testament. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Just think about that for a minute. There is a whole story told in that one verse. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. You know, I don't know how many words there are in that verse. I haven't counted them. But in just a few words, Matthew tells us, this is the one who was promised from long ago. This is the one who was promised in the covenant made with Abraham. This is the one that was promised in the covenant made with David. And so there is just so much information crammed into that one little verse. And that's really how the whole New Testament operates. The, whole New, the New Testament doesn't tell us everything. It doesn't say it all, all over again. But it, it tells us what it needs to tell us in that kind of way. By showing that this Jesus is the fulfillment to everything said before concerning our redemption in this Messiah. Um, it, it builds upon those foundations. And so to go to the Gospels only and to ask, who is Jesus, isn't really going to give us a a fully developed picture of Him. We'll we'll know some things that are true of Him for sure, and and maybe we can even know quite a bit, but He's not going to be as vivid and complete as He would be if we would read read of Him in the context of the totality of Scripture. We have to have this intra-textual approach. Intra meaning we have to read all of the texts of Scripture and compare them with each other and not just in some texts in isolation from others. Three, as we move from Scripture canon to theological formulation concept, that's a pretty cool way of putting it, right? Um, Scripture is called the canon because it is the rule or the standard. What is the standard for what we believe? Scripture is. The triune God is, and He has revealed Himself in many ways, supremely through the Christ, and we have His Word. We have His Word. So that Word is the canon. That Word is the rule for our faith. As we move from Scripture, canon, to theological formulation, concept, what do we do in theological formulation? We take what is said in the rule of faith, Scripture, and we we bring it all together so that we have these these concepts, these theological concepts that are well formulated. And Wellam says, as we move from Scripture to theological formulation, we must also take seriously the aid of tradition and historical theology. Tradition, as it has developed within the church, and historical theology can be 
a great help to the people of God. Some of you might be thinking, are we Roman Catholic? You know, why are we talking about tradition? And I say that sarcastically. Um, Roman, the Roman Catholic Church has an inappropriately high view of tradition to where tradition is placed on par with Scripture or even above Scripture, and we reject that. But as Protestants, as Reformed, we do not reject tradition or historical theology. We appreciate it greatly, but only in a certain way, in a certain place. And Wellam explains this. I continue. This is especially true in Christology. Why? Because the early church had to wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? I mean, they, they fought war, not, not literal wars, but theological wars over this question, who is Jesus? This, this question has been asked and it has been answered quite thoroughly in the history of the church. We would be fools to ignore that. We would be fools to ignore that. The Confession of Nicaea, 325 A.D., and Chalcedon, 451 A.D., are Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. Rules of faith. They are rules of faith in the church that define Christological orthodoxy, and we depart from them at our peril. Listen carefully to this. They do not have this status because they are equal to Scripture, but because they put together all the scriptural teaching in a faithful and coherent way. Systematic theology is more than simply repeating scripture. It is the full practice of faith-seeking understanding. I like that phrase, by the way, faith-seeking understanding. Um, Earlier, I was saying how our view of God and Christ might be weak or deficient, and yet we still have authentic faith. That's possible, I think. Um, And when I say we, I'm speaking not as a minister here, but as a, as a true and authentic Christian. I think it's possible for us to really trust in Jesus and to have some holes in our Trinitarian uh, theology, to, to, to have not really put all the pieces to the puzzle together in a precise and careful way. Certainly, a brand new Christian isn't going to have the same understanding of the triune God and the relations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one who is advanced in their in their understanding of these things. We, we, we get that, right? So faith can be true, though it is uninformed, though it needs to mature. But, but what do we do in theology? Theology is here called faith, faith-seeking understanding. So we have faith that's genuine and true, but we want to understand the faith, the faith, more and more. So that's what we're doing in a study like this. But the relationship between Tradition and Scripture has to be properly understood. And Wellam, I don't know if this is a concluding statement, probably not in the chapter, but he does say this to clarify. We must also remain clear, however, that historical theology and confessions, like the Nicaea and Chalcedon definitions and like our confession of faith, uh, historical theology and confessions are always subservient to Scripture. They're below Scripture and they serve Scripture. They're subservient to Scripture. Scripture, as Norma Normans, the ruling rule, has magisterial authority over tradition. Tradition, as Norma Normata, the ruled rule, 
functions in a ministerial or in a servant-like capacity to aid our interpretation and application of Scripture. Scripture is able to confirm or correct our views as needed precisely because Scripture is God's Word written and is authoritative, clear, sufficient, and sufficient for doing theology. I think that's a wonderful statement. Um, In the previous paragraph, number three, Wellam did refer to the Nicene and Chalcedonian definitions as universal rules of faith. And that can make some people nervous. Really, these are rules of faith. But here he clarifies what he means. Scripture is the ruling rule. It has magisterial authority all uh, over any creeds and confessions. But creeds and confessions can function as a rule or as a standard for us, but only as ruled rules. They're rules that are ruled by Scripture. Our confession of faith functions in that way in this church, doesn't it? Um, what does the church believe? Well, here's a copy of our confession of faith. It's stated here. And this functions as a kind of rule for us so that those who minister the Word of God in this place and those who hold to the office of elder and deacon cannot go outside of these boundaries. It functions as a kind of rule. It is not, it is not the ruling rule, but it is a ruled rule because it stands under the authority of Scripture and, and serves Scripture to bring clarity to what we believe the Bible to be saying on a variety of subjects. And so, Wellam's point is that we must start with Scripture and do theology out of Scripture, faith-seeking understanding. And we end with Scripture too, don't we? So that we can use Scripture to correct errors that we have perhaps made in the history of the church or in our theological formulation. So Scripture is the beginning and the end because it is the Word of God. But in the middle, I think it's right for us to make use of creeds and confessions because those who have gone before us have done the hard work of putting it all together, uh, putting what the Scriptures say on any given subject together. And it's especially important in Christology, because as I've said, these battles were fought very early within the history of the Church. Okay, a wonderful introductory uh, chapter here. Uh, It lays a firm foundation for us, doesn't it? Um, What do I hope you take away from this? We must start with the Bible We must see the Word of God as the Word of God, and we need to take the whole of the Bible into consideration as we do Christology. We cannot start with Matthew 1. Uh, We cannot pay attention only to the Gospels. We have to start with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what does John 1-1 say? Same words. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He does so by speaking His Word and, and by His Spirit. And then John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Second person of the Trinity. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what you're going to see is that we're not going to jump right into Christology. We're going to start with Scripture and we're also going to start with theology proper, namely the doctrine of God. If you get theology proper wrong or Scripture wrong, you're going to get Christ wrong. No doubt about it. So I love this approach. Um, I did print off for you here chapter 8 of our confession. It's very small. I only had enough room for for this size 7 font, I think. This statement concerning Christ is marvelous. If you were to compare this statement um, concerning Christ 
to earlier creeds and confessions like Nicaea and Chalcedon, you'd see, ah, there's a lot of similarity between what the London Baptist Confession said in 1677 in chapter 8 and these earlier creeds and confessions. They, they look very similar. And there's a reason for that because our spiritual forefathers in the Reformed Baptist tradition, they didn't start from scratch either, but they built upon those who went before them. And the other thing I wanted you to notice before I bring this to a conclusion is how our confession doesn't start by talking about Jesus Christ, but actually starts, what are the first words of paragraph 1? It pleased God, theology proper, yes, in His eternal purpose, speaking of the covenant of redemption made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the creation of the world, to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we see that He was appointed to be our Savior, our mediator, the mediator of the covenant of grace. So even our confession of faith doesn't jump right into the question, who is Jesus, in a direct way, but starts with theology proper, starts with the covenant of redemption, eternity, and even develops that um, out in the history of redemption before getting to the real uh, nuts and bolts of it concerning the question, who is Jesus? It's a marvelous approach in our confession, and really there's going to be tons, well, complete agreement between what is said here and what is said in our confession. Any questions in a few minutes we have remaining? I mean, don't start asking me about the hypostatic union and about the communication of properties. We're going to get to that. But, I mean, really you can. It, it's fine. It, any questions? All right. So I've delivered the lesson, and then hopefully we'll be able to read after the lesson. That pattern seems to work well for a lot of people. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We say that we believe in Jesus Christ, that our faith is in him. We say that we love him, we call him Lord. Help us to understand why all of this is right and good. Uh, deepen our love for you and for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.